This is the Serial at Midnight Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Serial at Midnight Podcast. My name is Heath Holland and this is a big one, guys. We're talking to Randall Kleiser, the director of Grease, the director of Flight of the Navigator, of The Blue Lagoon, Big Top Pee Wee, Honey, I Blew Up the Kid. He also directed some 70s TV movies that I wanted to ask him about. So we're going to talk about Dawn, Portrait of a Teenage Runaway. We're going to talk about The Boy in the Plastic Bubble, starring John Travolta, that actually directly led to Kleiser being hired for Grease a couple of years later. The, the doorway that opened this conversation, the, the reason I was able to talk to Mr. Kleiser in the first place is because he has written a new book called Drawing Directors Volume 1. And in this book, uh, we learn that he's been drawing directors without them knowing about it for the better part of 60 years. I think the first drawing in the book, uh, the earliest one that I can find actually, is 1964. And... He has a technique where he doesn't look at the paper. He just he, he tells us about the technique in the interview. But people don't realize he's drawing them. And so he's collected a lot of these into the book, Volume 1. There is a Volume 2 coming. And it's a really unique format because on one page, you've got the drawing of the director. And on the other page, there's a one-page write-up about that director, what he admires about them, what he's learned about them, or maybe a story about them because there's a lot of inside stories here. We actually learn a lot about... Mr. Kleiser through what he's writing about other people. So it's a really cool idea. I highly recommend it. I've read it cover to cover, every single page. Uh, I think movie buffs are really going to get something out of it. But because this is Serial at Midnight, you know, I didn't want to just talk about Grease. Uh, it's a huge cultural phenomenon that endures to this day. We've got a sequel, we got a prequel series. Uh, but I also wanted to ask him about other things like the craft itself. I wanted to ask him about being a member of USC's Dirty Dozen. If you don't know what that is, well, it's a class of USC in the 1960s that included George Lucas, who Randall Kleiser shared a house with. Uh, it included John Milius. It included Caleb Deschanel, so many others. And these people went on to become the new Hollywood, shaped Hollywood for the next 10, 20, 30 40 years, even today, because Mr. Kleiser is a leader in virtual technology. Virtual reality is a technology to tell stories. Uh, there's a lot here, guys. I had an absolute blast. I want to thank Mr. Kleiser for his time. I hope you enjoy this as much as I did. Mr. Kleiser, take it away. A lot of, you've done a lot of interviews from the other end. You're doing interviews for the Directors Guild, and you're asking the questions. Do you prefer one over the other? Well, no, I'm just interested in the... In the um craft of directing and so to get an opportunity to talk to these fantastic directors like Sam Men no who would I talk let's see Steve Stephen Frears Tony Bill uh, uh Jerry Lewis Carl Reiner to interview all those guys for four hours each was really a thrill and all those interviews are up on the DGA website and I think there are a lot of them are linked from your website too from randallkleiser.com yep yep four hours is a long time um do you do it all at once that's right. We do it all once. And uh, we go from a template of questions that have been designed by Martin Scorsese to uh, ask directors. So we just go down the list of, you know, what's a, what, how do you work with a production designer or, you know, tell us about how you're, you cast, what's your casting method. So, you know, it's, it's, um, it's easy to follow that. And, and these people are so interesting that, uh, you know, it, it comes out great. I love it. Is, what was your motivation for the book? We're going to talk about drawing directors, volume one, by the way. It's uh, how many, Can you tell us how many volumes there will be? 
<laughs> well, I have volume two ready to go. I just have to polish it, but it's a uh, hundred more directors. So I have 100 wow. in the first book and 100 in the second book. And, and whenever there's a, a Q&A or a, a, or a party where I know there's going to be directors, I just take along my, my, my uh, little sketch pad and I draw this thing, you know, from a distance, just moving the pen and the eye at the same time so that no one is aware that I'm drawing them. So it's, um, it, it's it, it, that way you get like candid type drawings. You know, not, have you gotten feedback from anybody that you've drawn? Nope, nope, I have not. It just came out, so I, I'm waiting. I hope I get good feedback. You know, I, <laughs> I, I hope nobody is offended that the drawing isn't isn't good enough for them. But it takes about twenty drawings to get one that works because usually an eye is where the ear should be or something like that. So, so hold on. So does that mean you're doing twenty drawings of each person of each of the ones that we see? Yeah. Mm -hmm. oh wow i have a bunch of bad ones i keep them all because it just shows me where i'm doing the wrong thing and it, it really focuses the hardest part is that they you know since they don't know they're being drawn <clears throat> they're moving around and so mm -hmm. uh, I'll, I'll get them in one pose and, and almost finished and then they'll go like this and then it's no good you've got a span of i mean almost 60 years worth of drawings in this one book it's pretty incredible well, yeah, and then the second book, I I, I put uh, ones from that same era too. I I just wanted to spread it out and get you know the the drawings that I thought um, captured the directors the best because some you know they're not all great. I can't like I have to admit, um, but some look have a really good look, and I I uh, and then others don't. So, but it's it's really not so much about the the drawings. It's about my my respect for these directors they're all directors that i that i really enjoy watching their movies and i think have a style that i like well your affection for them comes through in the writing as well and that's what i love about the book because you've hit upon a way that and i don't even know maybe this has been done before maybe it hasn't but you have your original drawing and then there's a one page write up about that director from you and it it tells us about your experience with the director your admiration for that director but it also tells us a little bit about you and some of your experiences that you might have had or what they taught you and uh i found myself i mean honestly I, now i knew we were going to be talking but i was taking notes about things that i wanted to go look up mm. from what you were writing so it's in, in one page it's very informative and it's very um it 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 makes me want to go learn more about the directors. So I don't know if that was the goal, but that's what I got from it. Glad you got that. Also, uh, there's a lot of advice for other directors that that I picked out from each each director. If they had some things that they wanted to tell, you know, uh, other other filmmakers, I tried to include that. Now the art style is called blind contour, blind contour drawing. Yeah, blind contour drawing is where you. Uh, Put the pen and the and the eye together, and you move the eye and the pen at the same time, and and hopefully it turns out that you know it looks sort of like what you. The more you concentrate with your eye and your pen, the more it looks real. And sometimes, sometimes, sometimes I did it really fast because they were moving around, and, and I did it really fast, and it turned out kind of interesting. You know, it doesn't it looks it looks a little bit surreal. Yeah, and it really captures uh, a lot of the people. Do you have a favorite? Of, of the ones in um, volume one? I think that um, Sylvester Stallone looks pretty good. Yeah. And, um, 
the Tarantino one really impresses me because it's just a few lines. I mean, it's like four lines, but you got him. Yeah, yeah, that one worked. Um, another one that I really like is Paul Greengrass, who directed United Flight 83. I think that one worked. Very good. Um, some of the stories that come out in the just you talking about some of these people could be a chapter in another book. And I know so I know you did the Grease director's notebook, but you haven't done like an autobiography, really, have you? Uh, it's in the works. I've got okay. uh, thousand okay. pages and i have i'm just trying to figure out how to cut it down you know i have i have stuff about um usc in the 60s with george lucas and john Milius as students when we were all students together and then all the way through all my movies so yeah it's an interesting why would you cut it down please don't cut it down <laughs> well how many 1000 page books do people read you know it's, it's... i'd read it i i i understand it's got to be commercially marketable too but i mean <laughs> It might be a couple of books, different ones. I don't know. Yeah, there you go. But I mean, like, I'm not going to spoil it for anybody, but you got a story. You, like you met Buster Keaton on the set of Beach Blanket Bingo in 1964. Now, I love that movie. Mm -hmm. I, I unironically love those beach movies. I think they are so fun and joyous and they capture a moment in time. And it's interesting to me, you're talking in the book about like, no one was talking to Buster Keaton. So you just go up to him and you start talking to him. You're sitting alone. Yeah. No one knew who he was. I mean, it was like they were all, you know, beach blanket bingo people and they didn't know about Buster Keaton. Uh, but he was he was very uh, I mean, he's an amazing director. I mean, if you look at some of the movies he did, especially The General, which had a a, a um, train going across a bridge and collapsing that rivals Bridge on the River Kwai. It's huge. Thousands of extras. I mean, the guy was was uh, directing like David Lean back in the 20s. It's it's amazing. I know you were also on some Elvis movies. I know you did some extra stuff on some Elvis movies. I'm a huge Elvis fan. Is there anything you can tell me about maybe being on set with those? Um, well, he I was on about four movies with him as an extra. And he recognized me and would say hi in the morning. He came in with his entourage of buddies who I think were all doing kick, uh, not but uh, what it was, judo or kickboxing. He did some kind of a thing yeah. like that, and they would practice that offset. But he um, was very professional. He would always talk, say to the director, Thank, uh, "Yes, sir. No, sir." He treated everyone with respect, and um, that was in the days in the late '60s where he was like at his peak. And um, uh, I got to do one scene in <laughs> in. Um, in the impossible no, no no what was that it was one of these elvis movies where he i was dancing with the girl and he came and took her from me pulled her up on the stage and danced around with her and then gave her back to me so i had a little silent bit with elvis that's great did it is it is that in the movie can we go see you yeah it's, it's on youtube too i, I think okay it's you are part of a collective of usc students alumni known as the dirty dozen and there are going to be people who are seeing this or hearing this that don't understand quite what that is. But do you want to explain what the dirt? I mean, you guys didn't name yourself this, right? This came later, I'm guessing. Yeah, the 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 Dirty Dozen was a movie that by Robert Aldridge about you know World War II, I guess. Uh, but yeah. the some someone in the press called the U.S. the C group that I was with the Dirty Dozen because we had twelve guys who all went and and had careers at the same time that took off um, and it was unusual because we were all in the same class together. So that's where that came from, the Dirty Dozen. And it's George Lucas, John Milius, um, uh, there's Walter Murch, 
Caleb Deschanel, um, and, and several others. Howard Kazanjian, uh, Hal Barwood, uh, you, uh, Robert Dalva, Donald Glute. Uh, it's it's so interesting that that class achieved so highly. I mean, and you in the book you mentioned um, being, I think it was in 1980, maybe. And it, there's a picture taken of you and of George Lucas, and I think it's of Spielberg as well, and of somebody else. You guys had the four highest grossing movies the in time. the world at that time. The other one was Irvin Kirshner for Empire. that's right. It was Irvin Kirshner. Yeah, yeah that, was, that was a little moment in time where we were, we were the top grocers. <laughs> what do you think it was about that class, that group of people at USC? It, it, you know, it was a new Hollywood, but yeah, new Hollywood hadn't really happened yet, had it? No, we were all told that we would never make it because no one had at that point, and so I think we had a lot more drive than most people. And and it's just a, it was a, a confluence of uh, of just I don't know what it was a, a magic moment when everybody just sort of came at the same time this one group and and took off I don't I can't put my finger on it I think it was a coincidence or or fate I don't know <laughs> was there any feeling at the time that the studio system was starting to crumble or the the control that the studios had was starting to erode a little bit. Well, yeah, I mean, Easy Rider was a big turning point when when suddenly the studios realized, oh, there's another audience out there of young people. And um, I can remember being an extra on the Warner Brothers lot and seeing um, a big a big uh, crane pulling up a, a sign that said, Jack Warner, uh, congratulations. It was when he was leaving the studio. And, and I thought, this is a turning point. This is the end of an era because... He here was Jack Warner, the last of the big time um, hot shots that ran studios, was leaving Warner Brothers, and where was it? Who was going to take over? There was nobody who had a personality big enough to even be noticed. Was there? I know you you mentioned Coppola coming from UCLA, and how there was sort of a rivalry, a competition between the two schools. Was that? Was it palpable? Did it did it push you guys? Was there actual competition? Do you think? I think so. Uh, we would come to their screenings or their student films when they come to ours. And, you know, we would always sort of put down theirs and they would put down ours. And it was kind of like a friendly competition. And, uh, uh, but, you know, the, of course, the schools had football competitions that were really, really tough. But the, the film school competitions were more, more uh, kind of fun and, and mm -hmm. snarky. Yeah. Well, I know at the time, too, you lived with George Lucas, which I think is going to blow some people's minds because he's become a mythological figure, partly because he's so private and so shy, I guess. But you lived with him. I'm sure you have some stories. Well, uh, I do. I just don't know whether I'm going to put them in the book, <laughs> next book yeah. or not. But um, no, he, um, George, um, I, I rented a room from George. He had a, a little house up in Benedict, uh, Benedict Canyon. I think yes, Benedict Canyon, and I rented the bottom half of the of the house. And um, yeah, we were we were like we helped each other. He was shot um, my first uh, student project, and I was an actor in his first student project. So we started out together. And and you know, I was always a big um, fan of Walt Disney, and, um, and then I ended up rooming with the next Walt Disney, <laughs> which was. I mean, I never thought that would happen. I thought George would become a production designer <clears throat> because he was so shy. I didn't think he would be a director. 
and um, his success has been fantastic, and, and he's been so friendly and, and supportive of me all these years, and inviting me to events and stuff. So it's great to, one of the things I noticed about film schools today is that you can probably learn everything that you get in a film school online, but what you can't get is the camaraderie that you form, the, the, the um, friendships that you form in film school, and working like we did, on each other's films and then going forward and then uh, continuing your career with those same people. Like Basil Polidorus was uh, in our class and he became a composer and he, he ended up doing five films for me and five for John Milius. So this is all from just having that experience of working together as students. There is a network, I guess, of Trojans. <laughs> That's what they're called, a network of Trojans who um, help each other in the movie business. And uh, a lot of times, if there's a choice between hiring someone from USC or not, they go with USC. Could you tell me a little bit about being mentored by Robert Wise? I mean, he's one of the greats. That's incredible. He was so, so supportive and friendly to students. And well, he was the president of the Academy, president of the Directors Guild. Uh, he, he was uh, someone who... Well, what, well, he was came down to USC to lecture when I was a student, and I, I approached him and said, can I show you my student film? And he said, yeah. So he arranged for a screening, because the, in those days there was no DVDs, there was no links, there was no uh, internet. Uh, so he arranged a screening of my 16-millimeter film at a, um, a screening room at Universal, invited me over there, sat with me, looked at the student film, he had rented the, the screening room, then he took me to lunch and talked to me about the things he liked about and how it could be improved. And, you know, I mean, that that was amazing. And then he took me on a tour. He was directing a movie called Hindenburg. He took me on to, to a soundstage and showed me this gigantic set that he was working on. And, you know, that type of thing really stuck in my mind as, as a great way to help other people. And uh, I've tried to do that with some students myself. That's great. Um, I would like to talk a little bit about your tv work because the films are, are very notable i mean you did in 1976 dawn portrait of a teenage runaway and the boy in the plastic bubble which led to your travolta connection which led to greece um the gathering in 1977 what was the i guess what's your attitude about those movies now and what was it at the time was tv seen as sort of a lower thing or was it a great stepping stone well, at that time, uh, episodic TV was like a, a real stepping stone. Then TV movies were the next step, and uh, then features. So that was I just went through the, the all the stepping stones to get there. Right. But um, the the TV movies were were fun because uh, they were done really quickly and um, taught me how to work on time and on budget, and taught me um, tricks when things go wrong, how to fix them really fast. I think that's the best training I ever had, the, the episodic and the TV movies, because you had to learn to think on your feet. And, and if the sun was going down or you're about to go into golden time or somebody got sick and you, or it started raining, you had to instantly figure out what to do. And, and uh, now I, I, I feel like on a set that uh, anything that comes my way, I can jog and get it going you know and and it clearly made an impression on travolta because my understanding of the story is that when it came time for uh when, when greece was in the pre-production stages he recommended you right true true and uh, uh the, the studio uh, robert stigwood first had me meet about saturday night fever 
and then uh, and then moved me to Greece. So I, I was originally lo being looked at for Saturday Night Fever. Was your friendship with Travolta formed during the Boy in the Plastic Bubble, or was it just more of a working relationship? It was from the Boy in the Plastic Bubble. I mean, it was his first time being uh, the lead in a project. You know, he had, mm -hmm. he had been in uh, Welcome Back Carter as Vinnie Barbarino. And so he wanted to break that mold. And uh, the Boy in the Plastic Bubble was the exact opposite of Vinnie Bar Barbarino. So it was a perfect first project for him. Yeah, he's a great guy. And um, we're still friends. When you were making Grease, did you have any inkling that you'd be talking about it decades later? No, no, we, we all thought it was going to be like a summer movie that would last, you know, for the summer. And then, you know, maybe we'd have a comeback the next summer or, or be shown. But we had no clue that 45 years later, there would still be this obsession with it, which I was in San, San Antonio last weekend um, for with all the T-Birds and Pink Ladies for a, um, a signing event. And um, <clears throat> a girl came up with. Uh, tattoos all up and down her arm of, of all the images from Greece. I met somebody else who had tattoos uh, of John's signature. He had signed her back and she went and got it tattooed right after that. And little babies came, people held up babies that had pink wigs like Frenchie. And I thought you were going to say the babies had tattoos too. <laughs> <laughs> that would be too much. <laughs> How do you feel about the idea of, of, reboots or remakes and sequels because i i mean people talk about greece being remade all the time or I, I i think they do what do you how do you feel about that well um i just think that it's for some reason everything fell together there with the casting and the and the and the great songs and the great ideas from tom moore's direction of the original stage play that um uh, you know it's hard to replicate that and um I, I, as john waters has said don't remake the movies that worked remake the ones that didn't work you know mm -hmm. do you i'm curious your thoughts about sequels because you've been on both sides you've done so like the blue lagoon that you directed and then there's a sequel to that but then you've also done uh like big top peewee which is a sequel i would consider it a sequel to peewee's big adventure mm -hmm. um what are your thoughts about about that just coming from a directorial perspective well, I also did uh, "Honey, I Shrunk the." Oh wait, "Honey, I Honey, I Blew Up the Kid," which was a sequel. Yeah. Well, sequels are not my favorite, but it's 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 like an assignment that you do, and try to try to just make it work and 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 be a good uh, second mm -hmm. part. Uh, so it's a more of an exercise than a, than a passionate project, you know. But mm -hmm. it's it's fun to do because you, it's a, a challenge to try to make it work. Yeah. And you are working. I mean, it's keeping you in the system and it's keeping you going and making right. money and mm -hmm. keeping your name in the Rolodex of the uh, of the yeah. studios, too, I guess. Mm -hmm. uh, I want to talk about Flight of the Navigator a little bit because I that movie was huge. So I'm the generation you know, I've interviewed Joey Kramer mm -hmm. uh, and I am that that generation that grew up with that movie. And it, I want to tell you, you know, but it was huge for 80s kids because it had the adventure and it felt like there was real danger and. Uh, the special effects were phenomenal at the time. So first of all, I want to thank you for that. I want to thank you for directing that movie and what it meant to my generation. Yeah. But uh, I'd love to hear anything that you could say just about Flight of the Navigator. Mm -hmm. um, well, my brother Jeff was one of the first people to work in CGI. He uh, was worked on Tron, the original Tron. And so he was doing a... Um, 
a bunch of experiments and I saw this Tide commercial where he took a Tide bottle and he had it change shape into another shape. And I thought, wow, that'd be great for the spaceship. Can you, so let's start designing that. And I found a kid named Ed Eith, an ar artist who was sitting in the outer office of a special effects company with his book sitting there. He was right out of college. And I, <clears throat> I just stand there and say, hey, what's that? And he said, this is my book. Let me show you. And he showed me these great sketches. So I immediately hired him to come work on the, uh, uh, on Flight of the Navigator. And he designed the, the look of the spaceship and a lot of the, and the little creatures that are in it and stuff. Mm -hmm. And so he's a really talented guy that I just happened to find sitting in the outer office. And then, uh, my brother worked on this reflectance mapping thing where you take all the the image and wrap it onto a CGI thing. And that's how we did the spaceship. The story has been told to an even larger uh, level in the documentary Life After Navigate, The Navigator, which you executive produced. And I do want to shout this out because Lisa Downs is a wonderful director. The story that she tells here, uh, both about the film and about Joey Kramer, is wonderful. And you're a part of this. And uh, I highly recommend this to anybody that's that's watching or hearing this this interview. I heard that Joey Kramer had robbed a bank and was in jail, and I went, "What?" You know, because here was this wonderful, warm, gentle kid who I never ever thought would do anything like that. So I I wrote to him and to find out what happened. And uh, the story is that he was he had gotten into um, heroin after. It was a, rejected by his dad and rejected by his friends because he was a Hollywood guy and he just fell into desperate times and <clears throat> he wanted to get off the drugs and the only place he could find that had a free um, program to get him off drugs was in a jail. So he robbed a bank to get into jail so he could get off of drugs. And that's the story that we tell in, in um, Life After the Navigator. And Lisa Downs and I worked on that um, together to bring that to light that story and i think it's very uplifting too because joey got out of it and he he's uh now working on getting his career back it's beautiful it's a beautiful story it's a beautiful story of redemption and then there's the making of the movie part too for the people that want to know how the movie came together yeah <laughs> tell me so one of the things that i think is really interesting about usc and about the the, the usc dirty dozen is you guys were in the program before special effects, I mean, before CGI, before anything that we're seeing now. And so many of you have embraced new technologies as they come out. I mean, we're talking about Flight of the Navigator. I know you're really into virtual reality and storytelling through virtual reality. Uh, you embrace 3D. I mean, you had the, the Honey, I Blew Up the Audience mm -hmm. attraction at Disney and George Lucas had the Star Tours attraction at Disney. Same time, yeah, that was bizarre to have the our two uh, our two attractions across from each other after yeah. all those years. Wow, um, yeah, uh, it was it was um, surreal to have uh, to go to Disneyland and see George's attraction and mine right next to each other. How is the is there is there a temptation to? ignore new technology and to stay with what you know or is this something that you've always been drawn to these cutting edge technologies well yeah because you know when we were shooting with film it was extremely expensive because you had to buy the film you had to pay to develop the film you had to have special equipment to edit the film you had to have special equipment for the sound 
It was, it was, I mean, nowadays, everything is <clears throat> right in the iPhone, everything that we had then. So the, it's, it's wonderful, this technology, because now students can make a film for no money, really, no money at all. And it was so expensive back then. And even when you got the um, everything cut together, you had to make a print, and that cost money. And you had to find a place to show it, and that cost money. So, so it was extremely expensive to make any, even a short little film. And so... Uh, of course, we embraced these ways of uh, doing it cheaper and and better because I think digital projection is flawless. You know, you don't see the scratches and the. I mean, I know that Quentin Tarantino loves those scratches <laughs> and mm -hmm. embraces that. But I I, uh, I find that digital projection, the clean projection, is so so nice to watch. Although over the weekend I watched. Um, Oppenheimer in 70 millimeter and it had that same clean look but you know in 10 years will it or will it have scratches all over it I'm really curious about your thoughts on virtual reality because I know you're really pushing uh storytelling through virtual reality can you talk to me a little bit about that the first time I saw um Oculus Rift I put it on and uh, I was walking through a villa in in um, Tuscany walking upstairs looking around it was all in 3D and I went wow how do you tell a story? How do you put actors in this? And so I developed a story using the um, the limitations of virtual reality, which is that you cannot speak to actors. They can speak to you, but you can't speak to them. You can't get up and walk around. So um, I developed a story about a woman. The audience becomes a woman who is in a wheelchair, who has had a stroke and was frozen for 30 years. And she wakes up and this, the movie begins with her waking up and being wheeled down a hall into a room to meet her family who have all gotten older. And they come around the wheelchair and talk to her and they're right in your face. And the amazing thing about virtual reality is that when an actor looks into a camera in, in a film or video, it looks like an actor looking into the camera. But in virtual reality, it looks like a person who's right there having eye contact with you. It's not like a, a movie. It's, it's like reality and not virtual reality. And so the storytelling uh, was so crazy because people who watched this project, we had five, uh, 12 five-minute adventures that, that all told the story each time she went to sleep and woke up and went to sleep and woke up. And um, the people who watched it felt that they were that, that character. And guys would say, wow, I felt like I turned into a woman. <laughs> and... Uh, Women would cry, I mean, because there's a moment when, when she talks about loving her family. And it just was such a different way of, of filming. And of course, all had to be done in single takes. There was no way to cut because in reality, you don't have a cut. You have, you know, you look around, you move around and it was all in 3D. So it's on, um, I think it's still available, but people are gonna probably discover it when the, when the uh, viewing devices are lighter and easier and cheaper because uh, right now they're sort of bulky and you have to wear this thing on your head. But once they get to be like this, and you just put it on, I think people will say, well, let's look at some old beginning stuff, like Defrost. That was an name Defrost, yeah. Do you think there's any, I'm curious your take on this about the idea, I mean, there's a strike happening right now where act, there, there's a concern that AI and the artificial intelligence is going to replace writers and actors do you think that's a reality or do you think that that's just a fear both um i think uh you know 
it's definitely a changing point in the industry, kind of a, as big as color and sound, because it's going to uproot so many things. But if people can figure out how to use it rather than uh, run from it, that that's the key. And I think that, um, like, for instance, it's difficult for designers because uh, you can just type something in and it'll appear and it's amazing. Mm -hmm. Designers can figure out how to, how to use that to, to further their, uh, their art artistry. That would be great. And in terms of writing, uh, it could um, help just organize what you're doing and uh, get a rough thing that you can polish. I mean, it's happening. It's, there's no way to stop it. It's, it's not going to go away. And um, so the best thing to do is figure out how to use it rather than run from it. Any ideas how we use it? Do we just, it requires ethics, right? Or does it not? I feel like it requires some, some ethics. Yeah, yeah. It's a, it opens so many, it's Pandora's box for sure. The box is open and everything's flown out. So you've got to figure out how to, how to use it and, and, you know, try not to do anything bad with it. I mean, it has to do with, who, who you are and what your ethics are are you going to use it for good or use it for bad so uh i'm hoping that well most most artists i don't think are are out to kitten hurt people they're they're trying to celebrate something so mm -hmm. i'm hoping that will happen well the book drawing directors volume one is essentially about 60 years of business uh, just of experience in in the industry uh with directors with filmmaking and i'm curious i mean i know we've got a volume two's coming but where do you see things going in the future you know we've talked about the past like where do you think the industry is going in the next maybe 10 years maybe five years i think that um the students who are in film school now or, or not in film school just at home doing stuff are going to embrace ai and figure out how to use it in a way <clears throat> that hasn't been done yet to do incredible things that we can't even imagine. So, you know, with with combining virtual reality and AI, wow. I mean, you can't even you can't even conceive of where we're heading, but we there will be things that blow your mind coming up really fast. And in 10 years, who knows? I mean, it's, it's going to be like unrecognizable, some of the stuff. And then there will always be storytelling that's done the old-fashioned way, too. But I think the new stuff is going to really, really, using the imagination of all these young people who are who are starting out and have lots of time to play with stuff. They don't have to get a job yet. You know, they're students. And mm -hmm. so they'll, they'll figure out some really cool stuff. Yeah. Do you think those cinemas will survive that the movie house itself with the big screen where so many people are watching movies on their phones and on their iPads and they're making Soderbergh made a movie on his phone. Right. So will yeah. movies, the, the, the experience of in a, sitting in a communal environment, watching a projected film, will that you think that'll survive? Probably in a more limited way because it's, it's becoming less and less um, uh, financially viable. Although it's tricky. I, I I can't predict anything. It's yeah. I mean, it's a wonderful thing to sit in the theater and watch a movie on a big screen, but there will be some. I don't know how many. Beyond Volume Two, is there anything else that you can tell me that you're working on or that may be coming down? I, I, you know what we should talk about the documentary, or the um, the Nina Fosh 
course for filmmakers and actors on Amazon Prime. That is really, really something for anybody who's a filmmaker or actor to check out. Uh, Nina Fosh was a student, uh, was a teacher of mine and George Lucas's and and Ed Zwick and a lot of directors worked with her, or learned from her. And we did a four hour course that's on Amazon Prime, Nina, the Nina Fosh course for filmmakers and actors. And it, it's basically her, the, her course that we filmed for 15 weeks and we cut it down to four hours all about casting, about how you treat an actor, how you get performances, how you break down a script. It's uh, it's it's gold for anybody. And, and it was a labor of love. I mean, we're not making money on it, but it's something that everybody should check out who wants to be a director. The other thing I have coming up is a documentary called The Baby Boomer Yearbook. And we, we're not sure where that's going to be placed yet, but it's um, it was done over the last 40 years. And it's about my high school class and I interviewed them every 10 years in the position of their yearbook photos. So it was inspired by Michael Apted's series, Seven Up. And so that uh, should be coming out. I'm not sure when. Okay. Well, I'm going to uh, put links for the book in uh, the description of this, of this interview. And I'll also put, I'll put uh, links for the Greece director's notebook and, and other things as well. But I'm going to say goodbye to you after we finish recording, but I want to thank you so much for your time. Was there anything else that you wanted to talk about that I didn't ask you about? No, you researched it wonderfully and it was a great interview. Thank you, Heath. Thank you. I want to thank Randall Kleiser one more time and I want to encourage you to check out his book. Uh, it's really wonderful. I think that film fans are going to get like, gunning to get a lot out of it because there's the stories like the Buster Keaton story, but there's so many more that we didn't really even get to talk about here. Uh, Lawrence Kasdan is in the book. Uh, his thoughts about new directors. I mean, he's got it all the way up to now. He's talking about directors that have just put out movies in 2023, and he's talking about the 2023 movies. So this is right up till now. It's covering essentially the last 60 years of Mr. Kleiser's engagements and interactions with other directors and what he thinks about their work. And I love that. I also want to recommend once again that you check out uh, Life After the Navigator. It is a really wonderful documentary about Flight of the Navigator, but also about Joey Kramer. I did interview Joey Kramer. I've interviewed the director of Life After the Navigator, Lisa Downs. Uh, both of those videos are here on the channel. I have linked to them in the description of this video. Uh, please remember to subscribe to this uh, wherever you're consuming this, listening to this, watching this. Please subscribe. Please rate. Please review. Uh, thumbs ups, comments, anything that you can do to engage. Please tell people about it. Uh, I really appreciate you helping to get the word out about Serial at Midnight and these interviews. I'm gonna, I might be a little bit biased. I think these are some of the cooler, more interesting conversations that are happening on these platforms, and I hope that you agree. I am really grateful that I'm able to have these conversations. The more you support them, the, the bigger those numbers get, the more in, the opportunities it opens, the more doors it opens for more conversations like this with other people. People do look at numbers. It's unfortunate, but it's true. People are looking at the numbers to see, uh, well, is this, a good, is this a good avenue for me to explore? So whatever you can do to support this channel, I do appreciate it. Uh, I've got a Patreon campaign if you want to learn more. That's in the description of this uh, video as well. Thank you so much. We'll be back here soon with another really interesting conversation. You're going to love it. I appreciate you. Take care. Till next time, I will catch you later.